So, um, as I mentioned last week, and in the uh, in the E group, Paul is the um, the leading expert on facial expressions. You can't put anything past him. <laughs> Actually, I, I must say a few, a few. I had a few moments uh, thinking about you coming. That you know, I better be completely authentic. You know. <laughs> It's kind of scary when you when you think about it, you know. It might be black bag, I guess. 90% where you're feeling, yeah, but there's a moment of, oh, I wonder what, and I wonder if he could catch it. So, um, anyway, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, and uh, and and one of the uh, leading um, authorities on emotions, the subject subject of emotions, uh, and. I also read that you were uh, cited as uh, one of the 100 most influential psychologists. Um, that's pretty cool. Is that in uh, in the 20th century? 20th century? In the 20th century. Okay. <laughs> well, you can you can work towards the no, 21st. No, no so. verdict yet on the 21st. <laughs> um, so he's he's a person who's of note and been around. Uh, and as I mentioned last week, for those who weren't here, um, he's come out with a, a, a book with a pretty good co-author, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, on uh, emotional awareness. And uh, as I said and, and reading in the book, he started out just with a, a few hours of conversation with, uh, with His Holiness and, uh, and then... Uh, they, he thought they were going to wrap it up a few hours more, maybe about eight or nine hours into it. And then uh, when, when he, His Holiness said, well, now we have to make sure that we have everything, that we're clear on what we want, and, and uh, you're going to come and we'll spend a little bit more time. And, oh, really? And he came for a week to Dharamsala. And this is the Dharamsala and then a couple of other conversations. And this is the culmination of like 39 hours or 40 hours of conversations with the Dalai Lama exploring the subject of emotions, which is um, just such a key subject. That's where we get lost and where we can uh, come to a real sense of freedom if we are not caught in our emotions, but use them intelligently, as Danny Goldman would say. So, um, how are we doing with the speakers? you got to ask Lee. The speaker's made to be faced the other way, Lee. So, I'm going to be playing to you some of the conversation. And clearly, most of what I'll play for you is when the Dalai Lama spoke in English. But his English is not always easy to understand. We're going through all of this so that you can see a transcript as you hear it. Otherwise, it would, it would be a snap. But maybe that will occur, or maybe you'll just hear it. We'll see if she gets it to work. How's the, how's the sound on his mic? Can you hear it? More? Uh, more up up a little bit more, Mac. I think uh, I think his mic particularly. Ah. Okay. So you're you're there. Now you gotta turn those speakers around. You had it before. I think I'm going to start, okay? And uh, let me read you just the first paragraph of the introduction to this book. Emotions unite and divide the worlds in which we live, both personal and global, motivating the best and the worst of our actions. They save our lives, enabling quick action in emergencies, 
Yet how we behave when we are emotional can make our lives and the lives of those we care about miserable. Without emotions, there would be no heroism, empathy, or compassion, but neither would there be cruelty, selfishness, nor spite. Bringing different perspectives to bear, Eastern and Western, spirituality and science, Buddhism and psychology, the Dalai Lama and I sought to clarify these contradictions and illuminate some paths that might enable a balanced emotional life and a feeling of compassion that can reach across the globe. We first met, actually, nine years ago uh, at the Destructive Emotions, Mind and Life meeting in Dharamsala that Danny Goldman then wrote a book about. And for inexplicable reasons, to me, not to him. Uh, we had an extremely strong connection. In his most recent book, The Universe and an Atom, Single Atom, he writes about that sense he had. For me, it was like a deja vu. I just met this man, and I felt like I had known him all my life. And uh, he was very amused by the fact that he can explain it, and I can't as a scientist. <laughs> That was a meeting of five scientists, and I had most of one day to try to present a Darwinian perspective on emotion, uh, which I must say he rejected a large part of. Uh, he now calls himself a Darwinian, and you'll see why. This is, incidentally, if you weren't aware of it, the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth, 150th anniversary of the publication of Origins. So there are celebrations going on all over the world. Um, and I'll be giving a talk both in Chicago at the AAAS meeting and then at the Royal Society in London called Darwin, Compassion, and the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and you'll get part of that. Uh, tonight. A year or two after our first meeting at that group meeting, I heard him speak uh, in Vancouver and he described emotions and their importance and I could hear some of my thoughts but I thought he was only talking about the enabling part not the crippling part. There are two sides of the coin. And so I proposed to two of his close advisors and friends that it might be useful if we met together to try to work through the contradictions that I described to you in the introduction. It took about a year and a half to get onto his schedule, and we met for 12 hours outside of Chicago uh, over the course of three days. And I was able to bring my uh, wife and two kids to it. Uh, they were there as silent observers, so that was wonderful fun for me. But when I meet with him, my back never touches the back of the chair, nor does his. In fact, it's an important clue, I was warned, that if he ever touches the back of the chair, <laughs> the next thing that's going to happen is he'll put on his shoes, and then you're out of there. We met a year later for three more hours, and at the end of those three hours, I said to him, well, I think I've got everything I need, and uh, I'm now going to reorganize things, because it doesn't make sense to do it chronologically. I'll do it topically, and then I'll edit it a little bit, and I'll give it to Jimpa, Thupten Jimpa, who is a primary English translator, former monk. Do you want to see it? And he said, who are the authors? 
I said, the Dalai Lama and Paul Ekman. Well, then you must come back and we must go through the entire book. And uh, two months later, I was back in Dharamsala, just at the beginning of the monsoon season. And we met for five hours a day for five days. And the book grew by a third in length. The dialogue is about the obstacles to emotional balance. There are a number of different obstacles. And it is, I believe, our joint belief that there, the combination of Western psychological approaches and traditional Buddhist approaches are very synergistic. And so we describe uh, in this book a number of ways to deal with the obstacles to a balanced emotional life. There is a chapter on anger, resentment, and hatred, which is an amazing title for a book chapter. Anger, resentment, and hatred. Um, it includes a discussion of forgiveness, um, two chapters on compassion, and the last chapter is on personal transformation. It's quite a personal chapter in which I described the change in the organization of my own emotional life that occurred as a consequence of my meeting with him, which Western science has no way to explain. Um, he believes it will forever be a mystery, and I, in my Western way, believe, as I told him, 50 years from now, this mystery will be revealed. You'll, some of you are young enough to find out who will be right about this. <laughs> so I want to give you a chance to hear some of our conversation. It was extraordinarily engaging. And um, after each audio excerpt, I'll talk a bit and let's... We seem to have lost. Okay, let's just go to the next one. And that's the jacket cover. And uh, we laughed a lot. And the next? Okay, so we're going to start with forgiveness and anger. You see what I said about the leaning forward? Okay. So now if the audio should have been on, we should be able to be hearing it. There's a volume control. Can you start it at the beginning, Lee? Just back up one and then start again. Then if I act in a way that harms others, mm. why do you forgive me for doing so? I could have chosen not to. Mm. I will answer. If you uh, keep that sort of adversity, uh, grudge, uh, grudge, yes. I don't know. <laughs> if you give grudge, then you will get more suffering. If you give forgiveness, then you feel more, more, more relieved. Oh, so it's good for you. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's good for the person who forgives, but does it not remove responsibility now, now, for example, I, I think, for example, now we uh, mentally give forgiveness to the Chinese. Yes. Hmm? That means we try to try to develop or try to keep negative feeling towards them because of their, because of their wrong deeds. But that does not mean we accept it. What, what they've done. So, 
spirit of forgiveness against them as far as their action is concerned. Explain a little more. I'm just on the edge of understanding. Oh, the forgiveness, I feel, means not forget what they've done. But forgiveness means do not keep your negative feeling towards them. So as far as that action is concerned, sometimes use your intelligence. You deliberately have to take countermeasure, but without a negative feeling. Can you feel? Can you take it away from the Chinese for a moment? Because <laughs> whoever it is, oh. if they act in a harmful fashion. Mm -hmm. And they had free choice, and they chose to act in that way. You forgive them, but do you also condemn their action? Oh, yes. 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 It's a wrong action. Yes. An unethical, immoral action. Yes. An unethical, immoral yes. action. If your side is honest. Yes. Then must, must criticize. This, I think, is what is in the West misunderstood about the Buddhist view. They believe that the forgiving means yes. you don't have hold them responsible mm. for having acted wrongly. Mm. If you don't mm. hold them responsible, how will they learn and change? They that's, right. Oh, that's, that's right. That's right. Usually you say, uh, uh, I make because of that. Distinction. Uh, distinction. After action. Yes. Huh? Action is concerned, you have to oppose. Yes. You have to stop. You have to try to stop. Yes. Even a uh, bit uh, harsh method. Yes. Oh. Yes. Uh, but as far as actor is concerned, yes. you should not develop negative feeling. Yes. And you should keep more compassionate attitude. Now right. that we we ourselves, you see, we often do that when I made something mistake to you. Then later I have to, later uh, I, I, I will say, say some kind of confess. Oh, confession, right? Yes. Oh, Sorry. Oh, apologize. Apologize. So that time I made distinction. I myself now feel that's wrong, wrong action. But wrong action, you never act, you never, because still you believe that wrong action is wrong, that action is wrong. Okay, very important. Huh? So important. I recognize that action is wrong, but that does not mean I still, I'm doing that. So I, because of that, I'll say they apologize. I apologize. This moment, I will distinction my previous action and myself. If I, I accept your apology, mm. then I'm recognizing that you and your action are not identical. I didn't remember. Yes, that's right. And so this leads us right into the heart of anger. Mm. Because when you wrote about this, mm. when I first read it, I think in Ethics for New Millennium, you said that you use force to stop the action mm. and compassion for the actor. Yes. That, I believe, is a description of constructive anger, mm. which means that if we accept your view of that, we then have to say anger can be constructive. I should love to agree. Yes. Yes, you agree. Uh, now here, you see, that anger yes. towards that person doesn't try to hurt. Stop the action. Towards person, towards actor, compassion. Yes. Towards action, anger. Even for the leave aside everything Just else, they'll never change if you try to hurt them. Mm. Only if you have compassion for them. Oh yes. Will they yes. stop acting right. in a harmful That's way? That's right. So. That's right. In a harmful That's way. That's right. So. Just if you didn't have any concern for ethics, just for practical consequences, mm. this is the right test. Yes. 
Very good. Stop. Very okay. okay. <laughs> well, nice word. <laughs> Useful meaning. <laughs> So let's go on to uh, this next uh, issue, the overlapping views of compassion. Um, it is, incidentally, uh, the we would typically uh, meet for no more than three or four hours and, or, and take a break and then meet again. And uh, the... Yes, this is a good example of what was always happening. We were always, and you'll hear some of the jokes coming up. He's he's having more fun than anyone I've ever met. Uh, but he's extremely serious. So there's one penetrates the other. So let's go on to the next. So we have. Fundamental differences. I consider emotion, because compassion. compassion is the kind of emotion. Oh, it's my goal. <laughs> by the end of today, you'll see it. It's a, so since it's, I... Uh, since that's I, what you're really meaning. Oh. That it has become like an emotion, it's become a part of you. Mm. It is now, comes out whenever there is the occasion. Yes. Is that what you mean? When you say, yeah, you that's what an emotion comes I felt emotion is something, certain mental state, mm -hmm. which now you feel very strongly. Okay. Oh. So the negative side also, you see, the uh, anger, attachment, very strong, strong degree. Then, you see, the, your physical, also see some changing, uh, and feel very strongly. So that same experience, the compassion. Yes. But the difference is, the other is more or less spontaneously come, uh, and from Buddhist viewpoint, much related with ignorance. Uh, this, like compassion, this infinite compassion, unbiased compassion. This is, it's only through training, through reasoning, through special effort, and once you experience, uh, once you see you uh, reach high degree of that experience, then same sort of effect on physical or physiological rest. The physiological changes such as goose pimples coming out and tears coming out. So the way I would like to change what you say mm. is that when you reach this stage of infinite unbiased compassion, mm. It is like an emotion in that it comes out without effort. Like it comes out no. with okay. strength. That's okay. Is that okay? Because yeah. the way it's written here, it says, and that's when the emotion comes in, you think, is that when you get angry? Or <laughs> that's no, that's not that's what you okay. mean. Okay. That's, okay. that's why I want to make that change. Okay? Yes. Okay. Now compromise now. <laughs> <laughs> of, of course, our, our knowledge, the emotion, is very limited. You know better, so okay. Uh, here, I just want, not a political reason, but I think anyway, something like this, political. The, I, I think since our meeting, I had opportunity uh, visit uh, some Muslim community uh, in, in, in very near Pakistan border. Pakistan border. Uh -huh. hmm? So, uh, uh, one religious leader in that community uh, welcomed me and uh, speaks. Then in his speech, you see, he mentioned, we Muslim, uh, we should love not only to human beings, but also to extend all creatures of God, or Allah, he mentioned. So they are the Christian Lava. Muslim chick Lava Lava. So here, um, since there's the mention of the Christian, yeah. so, so similarly, or similarly, uh, according to Muslim practitioner also, they 
the emphasis, the love or compassion should extend up to entire creatures of Allah. I don't know, nice. I'll put that in. Yes. Huh? I'll ask you the one question. Hmm. What about an atheist? Would you extend it to an atheist? Atheist through reasoning, through intelligence. So, uh, this follows up pretty much on what you just heard, uh, which we are discussing. How is it that we learn compassion? Uh, how is it in particular a more global level of compassion acquired? And in the taxonomy that I'm going to get into shortly, I'm distinguishing between simple compassion global compassion, which he's calling infinite compassion, and heroic compassion. So we'll get to that shortly. In Chicago, you said that knowledge can be taught to encourage compassion. Yes. Can that knowledge be learned by reading a book, or must it involve practice? Compassion knowledge there. Of course, the compassion is a actual sort of the mental action some some It's a mental activity, compassion. Yes. Or mental activities. That's what you're talking about. So it need not necessarily be expressed outside. Yes. But some 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 kind of mental activities. Hmm? Uh, or in other words, I I don't the proper word. But the compassion is a actually strong feeling of mind. Uh, without that feeling, just a mere knowledge of mind is such a such a uh, compassion is such a such such. That's, that's, uh, no effect. So you must be able to cultivate a very strong. Uh, With which particular practice would you cultivate? One our method is say, to see those beings, those sentient beings who are passing through a series of suffering. Some uh, helpless poor people. When we see that, generally speaking, spontaneously, the strong feeling of concern will come. Uh, I, I think, like television, now often showing these uh, violence. Now, for example, the uh, Iraq's sort of violence. And that, day by day, some people then may become something normal. Right? But often, usually, uh, when these often see, then you, see, you get the feeling, oh, how bad violence. Suicide bombings, how bad? So, so these are, uh, so that, that becomes something so that uh, living thing, right? Something fresh and uh, Through book, you may learn violence is bad. But then we actually just saw the people suffer uh, as a result of violence. Uh, then you really feel, sorry. Share. So that just seeing the suffering of others will increase, increase your compassion. Yes, that's right. So, let me now get a little more Western with you. Uh, the idea that compassion was an emotion uh, came from Francisco Varela, a neuroscientist, died recently, who had a large influence on the Dalai Lama, uh, and who maintained compassion as another emotion. Uh, and let me explain to you why I think it is not. Uh, emotions can be enacted, as you see, this way, but that's not so of compassion. We really don't have destructive compassion. 
It isn't a choice. Let's have the next. You don't need to cultivate your emotions. You need to cultivate the regulation of emotions. But compassion, if it's going to be global, needs to be cultivated. It isn't a given. It is fundamental to the nature of emotion that it narrows and filters our perception of the world. That can be very useful if it only lasts for a few seconds, very destructive if it lasts longer. You don't have access to information that disconfirms the emotion, even in your own memory, while you're in the initial grip of an emotion. Compassion is not distorting your perception. It's sensitizing your perception. So we have the next. Now this is why we call the book Emotional Awareness. Typically, you are not aware of the impulse, or the Buddhists would say the spark before the flame. You're not even aware of the fact that you're acting emotionally. It's not that you're unconscious, you're not sleepwalking. It isn't usually until someone says, why are you upset? That you then realize it. Okay? Compassion is an act, is a state that is not taken without awareness. That's another way it differs. We all know, unfortunately, that emotions can be out of control and lead to very regrettable episodes. No one that I know of, although I have a friend here in the audience who will probably think of an exception, um, has written about compassion that's out of control. That's just not a characteristic of compassion. And emotions are momentary. They can last as little as a few seconds, maybe a few minutes. They last... Uh, Half a day we're into a mood, not an emotion. Compassion is not a momentary phenomenon. Is that the last of these characteristics? So here's a taxonomy. Um, well, first let me say something before we get into the taxonomy. Why do we act compassionately towards anyone? Where does it come from? Darwin, in The Descent of Man, gives exactly the same explanation as the Dalai Lama. To everyone's surprise, even Darwin's scholars hadn't considered that. Descent of Man is a very interesting book, largely ignored, worth looking at. Um, what Darwin says, what the Dalai Lama says, is that when you see someone else suffer, it makes you suffer. We were saying, he was saying that earlier. And so why do you act initially? What motivates you to reduce their suffering? It reduces your suffering. You can think of that as a selfish motive if you like. But it is a real fact. It hurts you to see someone else suffer. And if you can alleviate their suffering, you stop hurting. What was it? Clinton who said, I share your pain? That's what he's referring to. The Buddhists view this as the seed of compassion, and it comes from the mother-infant. They would, don't say parent-infant, as we do to be politically correct. They refer to the mother-infant because of many of the special giving birth, breastfeeding, etc. Now, let me now get into the taxonomy of empathy. So first, I want to distinguish emotion recognition, which simply means to know how the other person is feeling. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do anything to help them. A torturer needs to know, have good emotion recognition, so they can adjust the amount of pain they inflict. But this is the sine qua known. If you don't recognize the other person's feelings, you will not be able to act compassionately. Click. Resonance. Resonance means that you 
have an emotional reaction to the emotion you recognize in another person. There's two kinds of resonance. I'm going to take a fictional example. My wife was a dean of the graduate division, that's not fictional, at Berkeley. But this is the fiction. She comes in one night, slams the door, and says, the chancellor is impossible. He won't give me any funds to support the graduate students. I'm furious with him. Residence one. Ooh, that rat. God, I'm furious at him too. So I resonate having the same emotion she does. Resonance two. Oh, honey, you poor baby, you have to put up with someone like that. Come on over here, let me give you a massage. That's resonant, but not the same feeling. We like people who resonate to our emotions. Okay? And yet, I would suggest that if you're in a situation like my daughter is, where she works in San Francisco's, San Francisco General Emergency Room, and sees agony after agony all day long, if you continue to resonate, you'll burn out. We have a long discussion of how does a nurse on an oncology ward deal with compassion for these children, many of whom are dying before their eyes. Next. So then we have compassion itself, which is a given. We don't hesitate as parents. We don't think twice about putting our own life in danger, doing whatever we can to enable our own children. Maybe to our nephews and nieces. Maybe to the people who live on the block. To extend it beyond that, for most people, takes cultivation. Next. So this is global compassion. When people all over the world read about what the tsunami did, Without being asked, people acted to try to help people who have a different skin color, religion, language. That's global compassion. The world isn't going to survive without global compassion. The days when you could get away with individualism, I take care of me, myself, and my family, everybody else is on their own, are over. It won't work that way anymore with energy shortage, with the climate problems, water shortage. We have to be concerned about all people. So the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, and a good part of the 20th century were the centuries of rugged individualism. This is really the century where the Buddhist philosophy is immediately applicable. It's needed to rescue the world to get this global compassion. Now, before we go on to the next, I want to read you a quote from Charles Darwin, Descent of Man. Quote, As man advances in civilization and small tribes are united into larger communities, the simplest reason would tell each individual that he ought to extend his social instincts and sympathies to all the members of the same nation, though personally unknown to him. This point being, once reached, there is only an artificial barrier to prevent his sympathies extending to the men of all nations and races. If indeed such men are separated from him by great differences in appearance or habits, experience, unfortunately, shows us how long it is before we look at them as our fellow creatures. Sympathy beyond the confines of man, that is, humanity to lower animals, seems to be one of the latest moral acquisitions. This virtue, one of the noblest with which man is endowed, seems to arise incidentally from our sympathies becoming more tender and more widely diffused until they are extended to all 
sentient beings. Dalai Lama said, did he use that phrase? Yes, he used that phrase. In a paper I'm writing now, I'm doing historical detective work, and I have uncovered eight different pathways by which Darwin might well have learned about Buddhist views. Now let's have the next. Heroic compassion. When you jump into the icy pond to rescue a child, you put your own life at risk without thought. That's heroic compassion. You jump into the subway to pull someone out. You don't consider. You can't consider. You just do it. Now there is... That's what I would call immediate heroic compassion. There is a more extended heroic compassion, which extends over long periods of time, in which you are, crucial issue is not that it's just compassionate, but it's at a risk of your own welfare. A political scientist, Christian Monroe, studied people with both heroic, immediate compassion, and extended now, she didn't give them any psychological tests. She's a political scientist, so she dealt with demography. But she found only one thing that distinguished them, and that's worldview, a Buddhist concept. When you asked them, why did you do this? I had to. They are human beings. Well, how did you make the decision? There was no decision. It was not a matter of consideration. They did not differ in religion, education, parent-child relationships, as best as she could. So where does it come from? Where we know not everybody has heroic compassion. Most of us don't know whether we have it or not because we haven't been in this situation. But when that person jumps into the subway track, there are lots of bystanders who don't. And so they learn, I don't have heroic compassion. (laughs) You already know, do you have global compassion? That is, have you acted to help people who have no relationship to you whatsoever, who might even be antagonistic to you? That's known. Where does it come from? Why don't we all have these characteristics? Not everyone has global compassion, and very few have heroic compassion. Should we think of this as like being an Olympic athlete? We don't say, why can't we all be Olympic athletes? We recognize there's just a few. We don't say to ourselves, why, that's your Solari, why aren't I Mozart? We recognize that's a gift. Is that what heroic compassion is? Well, these are among the questions that I'm going to be discussing with the Dalai Lama in my next meeting with him to continue the dialogue because we didn't get into these issues. We ended with these distinctions, but not what they originate from. And what we can learn, can we learn from people who have heroic compassion how to inculcate that with those who have global? Now, these people have not spent any time in practice They didn't have to learn it. Part of my research is on deception. And most people cannot tell from demeanor, from behavior, whether someone is lying. About a half of 1% can, with no training. It takes us two or three days to train someone to do it. That's short compared to the amount of practice to develop global compassion if you don't have it. But the startling thing is, that is there in some people, and it appears that it's there very early in their life, both global or heroic compassion. So before taking your questions, let me close by formally by quoting what the Dalai Lama and I each said during a publicity interview last July. It's the only joint publicity interview we did for this book. The interviewer asked each of us 
Why were you willing to spend so much time in this dialogue? And what do you think you've learned from it? So here's what the Dalai Lama said. Quote, in modern times, sometimes spirituality seems old-fashioned. So modern science is now something refreshing. And he laughs. But our interests are the same. The genuine good scientist really takes concern about humanity and humanity's problems, and particularly the scientist who deals with emotion. You see, they are very much concerned about that. So I felt that some joint effort from scientists, as these are the modern gurus, the gurus of modern times. I'm a Buddhist monk. I am maybe an old-fashioned guru. Now, once we start a conversation, there are many similarities, and I learned many things from modern scientists in the emotion field. They have a larger vocabulary than we do. In the past, you see, I have confidence as far as emotions and mental things are concerned. I think Buddhists have that kind of feeling. Now, after the meeting with this old gentleman, he points to me, he said that he categorizes certain new words in certain sentences or emotions. It's very helpful. And similarly, hopefully, he will also get some useful information from my side. So that means good collaboration. So here was my answer. It was illuminating. It provoked me to think of things I would never have thought of. And I hope I provoked him. We had so much fun. But there was this common shared moral commitment. I do believe we have come up with practical ideas that people can use to improve their lives, and that's what we want. And one of the areas that we completely agree about is that we need to see the world as it is. Very often we see it as it is not, and we act in those terms. Emotions evolved for us to deal with small groups of people and terribly large animals who wanted to eat us. It's a system that works very well in that context. That's not where we are now. The only equivalent, this I didn't think of saying at the time, the only equivalent of the saber-toothed tiger is that car on the freeway that's lurching towards you. And your emotions save your life, as they did with the saber-toothed tiger. The emotion system, in my view, evolved in a way that it did not make room for awareness, for consciousness, and it didn't build in fundamental wisdoms. Most of us don't know what our mind is doing at the time it is doing it. We use the radio to avoid our mind. You get in the car, you turn on the radio. Go for a walk, you put on a headset. You never allow yourself to just be with your own mind. The very first step is to be with yourself, with your mind, to observe your mind. We live in a society of organized distraction, where most people, even when they go to sleep, before they fall asleep, they take a pill. We don't listen, observe. We don't become acquainted with our mind. And there is a huge cost to being unfamiliar with your mind. Can you imagine? Most of us are living with strangers. Next one. So those are the questions that I'm going to be taking up with him. If you raise some new questions for me now, They'll get onto the list. I'm soliciting them from a number of people. Just give me... That's the cover of the book, which you can get in local bookstores. And that's the CD, which you can get at the back of the room. That's not in bookstores. You heard about 10 minutes out of the 70 minutes of conversation. And with the CD, you get the text, so that if you have trouble understanding him, you can be reading it. So thank you very much, and I'd welcome your questions. Might um, might uh, heroic compassion be not something that only a few have and the rest simply don't, but something that everyone has and most people it, it's blocked somehow, that something comes up that stands in the way and that arises first that prevents it from 
expressing itself? That's a possibility. You know, there's research on compassion, and he's, in my view, the Dalai Lama overestimates what science is going to be able to teach us. I say that as a scientist. You know, it's a modest enterprise. And uh, particularly when you're tackling something like compassion, if you look at the experiments that are being published, I mean, it's trivial. It doesn't really have to do, it's not embedded in a social context. In, there are very few studies. But we just don't know the answer to the kind of question you raise. It's a very good question. You know, is it all there within all of us? Are we all Mozarts that could be unlocked? And if we unlocked it, we would have millions and millions of Mozarts. We certainly know that in terms of Olympic athletes, that's not so. You've got to have certain kind of body structure and visual motor coordination. And if you don't have it, my own hunch is that it's more of a gift than something that's there in everyone, that it's more likely a mutation. Uh, but I, I, there's no data. We just don't know. It's a good question. Yes, the woman next to you. Um, I'm just wondering if it doesn't have something to do with the parenting styles. Like, how do you know that they aren't practiced at it? Couldn't it just be something from, you know, very early in their childhood that was developed? I'm going to ask Lee. Here, you can write right on here. And I'll give you a pen. Hey, could you write down that first question? Because I'd like to see what... That was my question. The, the, not good enough. Then I'll get to your question. Uh, we don't know about whether it's parenting style. Um, we don't even know whether if you have never been a parent, are you less likely to be compassionate? Does that seed never... Does that seed need to be watered by actually taking care of an offspring? We can get an answer to that. Um, but it's a good question. Again, no answer. Um, Kristen Monroe, she's a professor at Irvine. The book is called Altruism. It's in print. It's worth reading. Um, she says that she did not find differences in parenting. Um, if you, you know, a very, the concept of attachment is used in psychology very differently than in Buddhist thinking. Kids who are brought up with distant, rejecting parents, we don't even know whether they are less likely to manifest compassion. The questions just haven't been asked. They now are being asked. But the answers may come as much out of philosophy. I'm talking to a group of philosophers about this issue and I'm in London. Because uh, philosophers are unconstrained by data. They think. <laughs> and scientists, for the most part, tend to think I can't get data, I shouldn't really think about it. Okay. If I believed that, I mean, nearly everything I was taught when I got my PhD a little over 50 years ago is wrong. Almost nothing I was taught is right. A few things, but the majority we, we have since found is wrong. And a lot of the things that were mysteries then, we understand. So I do think progress is being made uh, particularly in neuroscience, but to study a phenomena like compassion, to do it in a systematic way, is no small challenge. To look at real-life instances, I mean, one of the studies that I'd like to find somebody to do who would be willing to do it, is you have a person who has acted heroically. You know, we can build a list of 50 or 100 people easily in the last five years because they get written up in the newspapers. Why are they in the newspapers? Because it's unusual. Okay. But then you'd go and try to match that person with someone who came from the same community 
maybe the same street, of the same religion, went to the same school, who had parents from the same background. How can we understand why this occurs in some, not others? Now, the problem with heroic is we don't know whether you're heroic or not, unless you're put in this situation. But what about the siblings of her people who are heroic? What about their offspring? Are they more likely? Well, if it is, has a genetic base, it would be. But we just don't know. All the way back there, the back of the room. A mic is running to you. Mic runner. My question is, is, is the hierarchy really valid in the sense that you could have somebody who has, um, to say, global compassion and then heroic compassion? My imagining was an employer, say, who exploits their workers, and then there's this accident on the subway, and that very same person jumps in and saves somebody. I didn't mean this as a hierarchy. I did mean that unless you have emotion recognition, none of the rest of it can occur because you don't know what other people are feeling. Um, there are some people who have a very hard time, but we've developed really efficient tools for teaching emotion recognition. Uh, they are available online. Um, resonance, both Darwin and the Buddhists believe, is a step. Okay? That to feel the other person's suffering is a prerequisite. Now, what the Dalai Lama says, when he reads about some terrible tragedy, you know, a hundred people drown in a ferry boat, he says... It's very upsetting for a few seconds. And it passes. He also says, I act compassionately because it helps me. It helps me more than it helps the person who I might act for. And also, on the question of the resonance, um, when the accident occurs, and you usually talk about resonance, you're picking up some signal from somebody. But in that accident, it would be more to me an act of imagination rather than a direct signal about the person who got hurt. And I wonder if you, there's an exploration of the difference between those type of phenomena. Good question. I wish I knew an answer to it. But they're good questions. Can I ask a question? Well, let me make this suggestion. My, if you email a question to Lee, L-E-E, at Paul Ekman, B-A-U-L-E-K-M-A-N, one word, dot com, I will at least in, include it in what I raise with him. And if I have the time, uh, I'll try to get you a response. But you can see already that most of my responses are, good question, we don't know the answer. Now that's, you know, about emotion 50 years ago, nearly every question that you could raise, I would have had to give the same answer. We know a lot more about emotion now than we knew 50 years ago. Uh, quite a lot more. Um, can, I, can I ask a question? Um, <clears throat> would you say that... Um, since I have, the, since the, I have the microphone, yeah, can I, yeah. <laughs> I must ask a question since I have the mic. But, um, no, you said that... Um, well, I, I was... I'm. I'm construing that perhaps um, heroic compassion is a lot like an emotion because it's, there's no thought, would you say? But there is no thought with global compassion also. And there's right. no thought as a parent of two kids. Uh -huh. I don't think before I act to help them if they're in trouble. Um, so I don't think the issue of pre-consideration uh, would distinguish it. Let me just mention one more thing. It's on a totally unrelated topic. And that is, Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday, at 9 o'clock, right after American Idol, <laughs> is a program called Lie to Me that uh, is based on my research and I think is going to be a useful issue in raising a number of the complex questions about truth and lying. The Dalai Lama is a very trusting person. He is surrounded by people who are not. 
So the whole issue of trust and when it's merited and our lies justifiable or are they all to be condemned? Why do people lie? In dramatic terms, this isn't Nova. This is entertainment, and yet it raises and I think deals with complex issues. So take a look on Wednesday at 9 o'clock. Uh, believe it or not, it's Fox TV. Thanks. So if you have questions, Lee at paulekman.com. Right. Well, thank you so much for being here with us Pleasure. and uh, hope that uh, your continued conversations with His Holiness elucidate all those good question questions. Well, we're going to meet in September and then in December. So maybe next year I'll come back and tell you where we got. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you. And uh, so we'll we'll close with a short loving kindness. And um, I'm just thinking, particularly that uh, that that slide taxonomy of empathy. I think it was or that um, next time we meet, we're going to have a new president who. Uh, says that the most important thing that we need is empathy. He said more than the budget deficit, the empathy deficit is the is the most uh, our, our most um, our greatest concern. And in fact, there's just uh, uh, loads of speeches where he talked one after another about empathy. You can uh, I forget the website, but there's a whole. A whole list. In fact, they're putting together a video of all the speeches where he talks about empathy. So um, feels really good. Feels really good. And uh, with that, let's just close with a short loving kindness. It's coming into your heart center, that place that can be touched by others and touches others. Breathing in the benevolence, the goodness of life all around you. Let it touch that inside of you. And radiate that out. And wish well towards yourself. May I feel all the goodness inside and share my love well. May I see through my fears and act with wisdom and kindness. May I see my true nature and help awaken that in others as well. And then from your own heart, include everyone here, everyone in this neighborhood, humans and all creatures, and radiating out throughout the planet in all directions. As I want to be happy, may all beings find happiness in their lives. As I want to feel love, may all feel the love inside and share their love well. As I want to see through my confusion, may all see through their confusion and fear and act wisely and kindly. May all see their true nature. And may our coming here together be of benefit not only to ourselves, to everyone in our life, 
and to all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks so much, Paul. See you next week with our new era beginning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.